passages that haunt me in the Bible. And one of them is, I was hungry and you did not feed me. I was thirsty and you did not give me drink. I was in prison and you did not visit me. I think about that a lot. This is why we support Thomas. We support this ministry. It's because this is a part of fulfilling what Jesus said we should be doing when we, when we do the gifts for children whose parents are incarcerated. We're, that's what we're doing. When, and the hungry and the thirsty, that's why we do pork. We just had it a week ago, and those that were involved, we really appreciate that you were involved in that. But it's because there are passages of the Bible that I go, I can't, I can't ignore this. I can't explain this away. I can't get around or get away from it. I have to face it and, and think about what it means for my life. And that gets me to, as we're thinking about Esther chapter 7, it, it strikes me in, as we've studied this book, what's the direction of my life? What's the direction of your life? You know, every day we make thousands of choices, little choices usually, sometimes big choices, but mainly little choices. Maybe in a typical day, you may bump into or drive by or see or interact with hundreds of people in all kinds of situations, different situations. And the question becomes, who are you becoming? What are you becoming? What's, what's, what's going on with your life? What is the direction? Maybe another way to think of it, I was thinking about this, is that who were you 10 years ago? Who were you five years ago? Who were you one year ago? Who were you one month ago? Who were you yesterday? Who are you today? And then, who will you be tomorrow? Who will you be a month from now, a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now? Where is your life headed? Our lives are all going somewhere. You know, they're all going somewhere. So what's the pattern of your life. What is it moving towards? And we've been looking at the book of Esther, and we're looking at basically a lot of what we focused on is two lives, two directions, two patterns that have been established in a life, two endings. And so as we get into this, I want to just review a little bit. We're in the book of Esther. Remember, we're talking about, about the fifth century BC. Xerxes is the king of the great empire, the Medo Persian Empire. We meet Esther, who is this obscure orphan girl who has risen to be queen because she won a beauty contest, which really wasn't a beauty contest. It was how well she performed for the king sexually, and through, she, was not, she did not volunteer for this. She was taken, and uh, she becomes queen. So we meet Esther. We meet Haman, this proud and self-absorbed man who has risen to be the king's prime minister. We meet Mordecai, who is Esther's uncle who raised her. And we find that for various reasons, even, even though the prime minister is this lofty position, Mordecai refuses to bow to Haman, and this infuriates Haman no end. It, he hates it. It, it. it dominates his life, his anger over this. Mordecai is a Jew, and Haman comes from a line of people who hate the Jews, and so there is this hatred of Mordecai, but also Haman has this intense hatred of his people, the Jews. And uh, uh, I I was looking this up, and a number of, of, of people who would hopefully know, estimate there's probably about 15 million Jews in the world at this time, and they basically are all in the Medo Persian Empire. They're all under 
this uh, king, Xerxes. And so Haman's hatred is so strong that he devises a way to get Mordecai, but also to get all the Jews. So he goes to the king, and kind of under false pretenses, he convinces the king without telling him exactly. There is this, this ethnic group of people who hate him, who, are, who are, are, are not being subservient to the king, who are undermining his authority throughout his kingdom. And he says, something has to be done, king. This is going to be a terrible thing. And so the king says, oh, man, you are, you know, what are we going to, and so Haman proposes an edict that, that on a certain day coming up ahead, which he's determined ahead of time would be the best day, uh, all Jews, in a sense, for a day are fair game. It's like a purge kind of a thing. Any Jew can be killed throughout his kingdom on this day, and their goods can be taken. So we see also there's an economic aspect to it, too. Haman's thinking long-term in terms of finances and money also. But he gets the king, convinces of this. The king approves it. He approves this edict that can never be rescinded. This is the key in this, too. So Esther, the queen, is Jewish, but she hasn't told him that. And Mordecai gets in touch with her, and finally, you know, through this, he says, you, got, you have to do something. And she's very hesitant, and we studied that. Why was she hesitant? What was she afraid of? And, and there's a whole, whole lot of, in there, and Mordecai tells her finally, he senses her hesitancy, and he says, look, God's going to save his people. He's going to save his people. I'm sure of that. But maybe for this moment in history, you've been put in this place. For such a time as this, you have been raised to this position. And so she acknowledges that, and she says, then we need to fast, we need to pray, I need, I need to tell everyone, fast and pray, and I'm going to decide what to do. And um, she tells him, I will go to the king, and if I perish, I perish. And she, so she goes, and she wins favor. And he says, what do you want? And she says, come to my feast. I prepared a feast for you. So the king comes to the feast. In fact, in the Hebrew there, it says, he says literally, oh, goody. No, that's not true. I just... I don't even know why that came into my mind. Uh, so the king says, I'll come, and, and, and uh, Haman comes, and, he, and he, he, she invites Haman also. So at the end of the feast, he says, man, this was awesome. This was awesome. Um, what do you want? What do you want? Come to my feast, she says, tomorrow. I'm going to have another feast, and it's going to be tomorrow. You come to that feast. So, so you understand what's going on here. She comes to him. He grants her favor. He says, what do you want? She says, come to the feast. So he comes to the feast, and he says, what do you want? She says, come to the next feast. And she keeps, she keeps and this is brilliant. Once you begin to understand what's going on, she has figured something out that is amazing. But there's one flaw in her plan. Haman decides after the second feast to kill Mordecai right away before the third feast. He can't wait. So he builds a gallow, and he's thinking, I'm going to go to the king early in the morning. I'm going to get permission to plant Mordecai on this big stake. Because that's, if you read in Esther what version you have, they may say hanging. It's not hanging. They, they didn't do that back then. It's not hanging by a rope. It's hanging on a stake that has impaled your body. Yuck. Okay, so we got that. We're through that. So he goes early in the morning to ask. Meanwhile, as if you kept up on this, the king has a, he can't sleep. He can't sleep. And so he says, hey, he says, hey, get out the books that talk about me and tell me how great I am, right? 
And so they get out and they tell me so once. And so, you know, they're reading the book and they're saying, yeah, and then there was this guy, Mordecai. There was a plot to assassinate you and Mordecai came and told you about it and saved your life. And he goes, yeah, that guy, what a good guy. What did I do for him? And they're like, you, you haven't done anything yet. What? Got to do something for him. So the king says, hey, it's early in the morning. Anybody here yet? And they said, yeah, Haman's outside pacing like a madman. Come on in. Haman, he says, what should I do for the man that I delight to honor? And Haman's like, well, that must be me, you know, right? That's the first thing he thinks. So he describes this elaborate, get out one of your royal robes, get a royal horse, get a crown, put that man and have him go through the streets like a parade, have somebody lead the horse and say, this is what the king does for the man he loves, he delights to honor. And the king says, you're right. Go get Mordecai and do that for him. You know, don't, right? He's like, uh. I always think how I would act in situations like this. And I think if I was Mordecai, we'd be riding along. I'd be like, hey, 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 big H, a little louder on the delights to honor thing. Say that a little louder for me, would you, buddy? (laughs) Yeah, you're good. You know, I'd just be rubbing it in big time because that's how I am. So now you know, (laughs) if you get in any kind of situation with me, I'm going to rub it in your face. I'm telling you that right now. So that's what happens. Haman is humiliated. He goes home. And basically, his loving wife and his friends who told him to build the gallow tell him, you're a goner, pal. You're a goner. And so... Just then, the king's men come and say, time for the feast. Let's go, Haman. And off they go. This is where we pick up. Now, important for us to know, Esther doesn't know all this is happening. Esther does not know Mordecai's life is in danger. She does not know the king is going to have insomnia. She does not know how this turns out. She's living in a tension, the in-between, which is where we live so many times in our lives, we're involved in situations and we don't know how it's going to turn out. We don't know what's going to happen. And we live in that tension. Because only thing she knows is this. She's trying to do what God called her to do. And you know, so many times in our lives, that's the only thing we can know. I'm going to try to do what God has called me to do. That's all I can do. I can't know all the details. I can't know all the ins and outs. It's too much for me. I can't know it. And so she lives in that tension. She does not know that her plan, the timing of her plan, could very well cost her uncle his life because she delayed for the, to, to have the third feast. But God knew. God knew, and he worked. And so she has this plan, this plan of delaying. And and it's brilliant, but it was almost a disaster. But it, it occurred to me, why is she doing this? Why is she extending this out? Why is she delaying like this? Well, a big reason has to do with this idea of saving face, this idea which was big in that culture, which is big in many cultures today, this idea of not being humiliated, of not being shamed in front of others. She knew this. She knew the king had appointed Haman to be her prime minister. She knew that. All right? And so she knew that the edict that Haman devised ultimately had the approval of the king. So if she unveils this plan to the king, he's going to lose face. His number two, the man he appointed 
has put him in an untenable position. And that's, that's shaming for him. And so, because I don't know if you know this, but if you pick someone for a position and then shortly thereafter you have to fire them, that reflects badly on you and your picking skills along with that person. And so she understands something. He's going to lose face. So on the first, when she came to him and he granted her favor, what do you want? She goes, no, it's too soon. Because he may not be up for that kind of, the, the amount of shame that this may involve. I've got to get him. So what does she do? Ah, come to the feast. Then he says, what do you want? The second time. She says, still a little too soon. Let's get him to the third feast. And then when he asks me, he'll be ready. I'll have developed this to this point. This is a brilliant plan that she has. So, chapter 7, here we go. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And as they were drinking, this is the third banquet. And as they were drinking wine on the second day, the king asked again, Queen Esther, what is your petition? It will be given to you. What is it you request? Even up to half the kingdom, it will be granted. What do you really, really want? Right? He's asking her. And this is the third time. So he's asked her three times, what do you want? I'll give you anything, up to half the kingdom. Now we know that's an exaggeration that royals use in a lot of ways to emphasize how willing they are to give you something. And so he now is at the point where he's, she feels like he's willing. This is it. This is the right point. And there's also this sense that she's kind of strung it along, so he really wants to know. Like, what is going on here? And Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition, and spare my people. This is my request. Now, here, we, we, she gets it. She's very, she's very wise in how she does that. I'm going to keep saying that a lot. I understand. She's very smart in how she says this because she uses the language of royalty and diplomacy, right? She says, if I have found favor with you, you, I don't care about anybody else, you are my focus here if I found favor with you, your majesty, I'm keeping in mind who you are. And if it pleases you, you. So she's focused on him. This is the language of royalty. This is the language of diplomacy. She says, my life. Grant me my life. Now, this is very key because what's happening here is she's saying my life is an intimate, intimate, imminent danger. It's one of those. It's all of them kind of, really. My life is an imminent danger. Now, think about this. Kings obsess over security. In history, we know very few kings die in battle. Lots of kings are assassinated or die at home in their castle. So they obsess over security. So think about it. What does that mean when the queen says, I could be killed at any moment? The king's going, what? Here? In my house? In my private quarters? My queen's life is in danger? Because if my queen's life is in danger, my life is in danger. And that's what kings obsess about. So she knows exactly where to go with this. She is smart. She is smart. Because now she brings his own self-interest into this. He goes, grant me, she says, grant me my life. That's my petition. And then she says, spare my people. Uh, that's my request. 
This is my request, spare my people. So she identifies with her people for the first time. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Okay? So she says, first of all, she says, we've been sold. This is about, there's money involved in this. And then when she says to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated, she's quoting from the edict. All right? And then she uses a little exaggeration, just like he does. I mean, she says, if it was just about the whole, my whole race, 15 million people, getting sold into slavery, that's nothing to disturb the king with. But this is about them dying. She's saying, look, anything else wouldn't have been, you're too, it's, your time is too valuable to be wasted with anything else. But this is important. All right? So she lays that out. Imagine the tension in that room. Imagine the tension in that room. She just quoted the edict. The king, I am sure, does not remember exact wording of the edict, but Haman does. Can you imagine? They're sitting there eating, and King Haman's like, <clears throat> what? Suddenly, he's aware that something is going on that he had no idea what is going on. It's like, one of my favorite movies is a western. It's an old spaghetti western made in Italy, called The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. And Clint Eastwood is in it, and it is just a classic. It will make you a better person if you watch it. So it's three hours, though. So it's a classic three hours. But at the final point, there's a gunfight. And there's three men. You know, it's Clint Eastwood, and it's Lee Van Cleef, and it's, uh, I can't remember his name. He was the ugly one. Anyways, or the bad, I forget. Anyways, they start, it's a, it's a three-way gunflight, so there's a big circle, and they're at like points of the circle, and they're looking at each other, and the director pans back. He's shooting it from far away and just showing each angle of each person. Then he moves up, and he shows each person and their hand twitching over their gun. Then he moves up, and it's about this much. Then he moves up, and it's just faces, and you see the twitches, and you see Clint Eastwood, and he's got that little cigar in his mouth, and he's moving around. I'm telling you, I used to, when I was a little kid, I had these big... Um, pretzels. They were a long pretzel. I put that thing in my mouth. <laughs> I'm going to kill you, son. Like that. I just love that. I just loved it. Clint Eastwood was so cool, right? So then he ends up just showing their eyes, and all you see is eyes squinting and looking and squinting and looking, right? And then, and then Clint Eastwood shoots one of the guys, and the other guy, Clint, had, had quietly uh, taken all the bullets out of his gun, so he knew he didn't have to worry about him. And then he has that famous line in this life. There are people who have loaded guns and there are people who are dig, who dig, you dig. And that was, there's a lot of theology in that, I think. Um, I don't know how yet, but what I loved about that movie, what I loved about that movie and that scene, even though, I mean, that's a gunfight that lasts about a quarter of a second for someone to shoot someone, but the buildup's like three minutes of just, you know, what I love about that is you get a real sense of the tension, you start to feel it because he's building it. He's, the director's building it and playing it. So you start going, oh, man, that must be hard to look at two people at once. How would he do that? You know, and you just you feel it. That's what's going on here right now. She's been talking, and the tension is building. And, I, I, and Haman, I'm sure, is getting more and more uncomfortable. And now she said this. She said, look, I'm, I'm begging for my life. You wanted to know what I wanted? Here's what I want. I don't want to die. 
right here, right now. I don't want to die. I don't want my people to die. I'm begging you for that. And now what happens? She tries to read the king's face. Haman is squirming. The king is probably getting angrier and angrier as he's realizing something has happened that he had no clue. So King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who is he? Where is he, the man who dared do such a thing? He said, where is, like, where's the traitor in my house? Where's the mole in my castle? Who has infiltrated to the degree that my queen, my queen is in danger? Who is this person? See, he doesn't have a clue. And Esther says, an adversary and an enemy, this vile Haman. And then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. He knows it's up. Now, I want you to stop for a moment here with me. You don't have a choice. So we're stopping for a moment. And I want us to think about Esther for just a minute. Because here's this, she was just this young girl. This young girl, and she was taken. And she was taken, and she was manipulated, and she was placed in a situation that was not of her choosing. And she was put in this situation, she became the queen. She's thrust into this world of intrigue and danger. And what I see about this, because this is what is so important in this, in this book, is that the Bible is portraying Esther as this incredibly strong woman. And yet, how she got to where she was was totally beyond her control. And as the queen... She, she in, in a sense, she wields no power in those days. The queen had, had no power granted to her. And yet we see such a powerful woman. I mean, you know, and, and, and the thing I think about is, and this, you know, we've talked about this before. It gets a little delicate. Basically, the king had a harem that probably included thousands of women. And so he could have any woman he wanted in his bed that night. In fact, when Mordecai, remember, when Mordecai comes and tells her, you got to go to the king, she says, look, he hasn't asked for me in over a month. He's found a new plaything. He's found a new one. I can't go to him because I'm not in his favor anymore. I'm not special to him anymore. And so she's in this position, and yet we see through this She's granted no power, but she creates power because she's brilliant and she's careful and she's bold and she's incredibly courageous. And, 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 and it's very honest. She's hesitant at first. Ah, he'll kill me. And then she grows into this. Her strength and her faith rise. She tells him fast and pray, I need God in this, but I'm willing to risk it all. And so now here she is. She's unveiled this plot. She's laid out that it was Haman. And this is the moment of truth. What is the king going to do? What will the king do? Now we know because we've read it, but she didn't know. She's on pins and needles right now. Because he could possibly say, well, I don't know. He's done a lot of good. He's done a lot of good. I can't, I can't do that. I can't do that to him. He can say, we'll try to figure out something for you, Esther, but your people are gone. I mean, that could very possibly happen for him to try to save face that way. But what did happen, verse 7, the king got up in a rage. He left his wine and went out into the palace garden. But Haman, realizing the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to beg Queen Esther 
for his life. See, he's, he's figured, the fact that the king got up and left, Haman's like, nope, nope, because if he was going to say, eh, I don't know, he'd have said it. So now he's figuring out what to do with me. He's figuring out how he's going to kill me. He's figuring out, Haman's going, to, and so he is begging Queen Esther for his life. The king storms off. And this is the problem. He knows what he has to do, but he doesn't know how to do it. How's he going to do this without looking bad? How's he going to go? How is he going to have a press conference and they're going to say, hey, you're prime minister. Why'd you fire him? Because he's an idiot and whoever appointed him is an idiot. You can't say that. But that's what people are going to infer. So how am I going to handle this? How am I going to get out of this mess? Haman stays to beg. How the mighty have fallen. You know, just a little earlier, he was bragging. He was talking about his possessions. He was talking about his properties. He was talking about his sons. He was talking about the power he had. He was talking about how he was the number two man in the whole nation. He was bragging about who he was. And now he's begging for his life to someone that he hates. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is in, with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Okay, there's a lot going on here historically, too, that we know about. It's very interesting because this, this book is not like a fairy tale. This book is, is history. It's written as history. It includes facts that only someone who was close to the, to the matter would know. One of them is this whole thing. I, I have a picture up here. Of uh, if you see these like little tables, little reclining tables, this is how people oftentimes in those days they, they'd be different. This is actually a, a kind of a Roman one, but you would recline and food would be put, and you'd reach. You never use your left hand; that's the unclean hand. You use your right hand, and you'd 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 eat with your right hand while you reclined on your left, and that's the way people ate. Sometimes, if it was large crowds, one whole section would be for the women, one section would be for the men, another section would be for the elite men. You know, they would do it that way, but they separated them. And what has happened is Haman has gotten up off his couch and he's gone over and leaned against the queen's couch saying, please, please, I don't want to die. That's what's happened. And so Xerxes comes in. He goes, he's assaulting the queen. I have my out. I have my out. I bet deep inside Xerxes is going, yes, you know, Thank you, Dagon, or whoever. I don't know who he would think. He's, he, he goes, I have my out because he's done something you cannot do. In those days, the law was, especially in the king's house, a man, which is why there were so many eunuchs, all right? A man cannot come within seven feet of one of the king's women. Can't come within seven feet. And Haman broke that. And now what he's done is assault. It's the equivalent of assault. And now the king is relieved because he has an answer to his problem. And it saves his face. So now when he goes to the press conference, he can say, I didn't fire him and have him put to death because he was a terrible advisor. It's because he assaulted the queen. That's what's going on. Right? Then it says they covered his face. And, and this is something that was done by the Medo-Persians, and sometimes the Romans and the Greeks did this. But for the Medo-Persians, what it was is when a man was condemned to die, he, they immediately covered his face so that he could not see the king. He was never able to see the king again. And they covered his face so the king did not have to see him ever again. It was a very symbolic thing. It was uh, the equivalent of pronouncing someone to die. They just 
put the thing over your head, and you're a goner. And see, it would be something that 90% of the population would not even know about because it only happens when it involves someone the king condemns to death. But the person who wrote this had intimate knowledge. And so they covered his face. Then, verse 9, Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, A pole reaching to the height of 50 cubits stands by Haman's house. He had set it up for Mordecai, who spoke up to help the king. The king said, impale him on it. You know, when you're a person like Haman, you don't have a lot of friends because you're obnoxious. You're proud, you're self-absorbed, you're egotistical, and people tend to not like you. Harbona pipes right up. Do you notice that? He's like, get him out of my sight. Harbona goes, I have an idea. I don't know if you know this king, but <laughs> he was going to impale somebody on it. Let me see. Who was it? Oh, it was Mordecai, the guy we were talking about this morning that saved your life. That Mordecai. That's who he was going to impale on that pole. You know, can you imagine Harbona? I don't know. What, what do you think? <laughs> King's like, yelp. I'll hoist him up. and draw. Oh, that's, never mind. I even, I, yeah, I shouldn't even joke about them. So, I think about this. What led to Haman's destruction? This. Everything's all about me. People meant nothing to him. It was all about him. His life, we talked about this at the very beginning, his life was moving in a selfward direction. And it's easy to look at this and think that it's not relevant to your life because you're not rich, you're not powerful, you're not a prime minister, you're not a queen. But think about it. That's not how they started on this path to get to where they were. That's not how they started. They started like you and me, and their lives slowly moved in this direction. There is a music video. I would, it's one of these ones that's not fun to watch, but I would encourage you to watch it. It's by a singer named Sufjan Stevens, and it's called John Wayne Gacy Jr. If you remember, John Wayne Gacy Jr. was a, uh, a, a serial killer, and he, he wrote a song about him which is a strange thing. When somebody first told me that, I was like, that's weird. And he wrote a song, and he talks about how he was as a kid, and, and the video follows this. And finally, Sufjan Stevens says, basically, I'm just like him. If you dig under my floorboards, you'll find my secrets that I've hidden. John Wayne Gacy hid under his floorboards some of the victims that he killed. And Sufjan Stevens says, we are all. Haman, John Wayne Gacy. We are all. We all have that potential in us. We all can be that. And so the key then becomes, if we can be like that, the key becomes, what direction is your life heading? You know, Haman, he cycles through all these emotions. He's angry over minor things. He, he's really happy when things go his way. We see this. He's hurt and resentful. He's terrified. Right now, he's terrified. But in all those things, if you notice, it's all about him. When he's happy, it's because it's about him. When he's terrified, it's because it's about him. It's all about him. Esther cycles through all those same emotions. She hears that she has the terror when she hears about the edict. She has this anxiety like he had when she goes to the king because she knows her life could be forfeit right there. She has fear. She has anger. The difference is she's focused outward, away from herself. She gets angry about the things that God gets angry about. She wants to save God's people. 
She believes she has to do what God is calling her to do. Even though she's hesitant and full of doubt, she follows through. She does it. She asks God for help. She asks her family and friends for help, for prayer, for fasting. But you have two people. And he was focused totally on himself. And her focus was outward. You know, our lives are busy. Isn't it funny how, even this morning talking to a couple of people, how saying, Phew, I'm glad the holidays are over. I'm glad the break is over. Right? It's just so busy. Our lives are busy. We have millions of options. We have all kinds of input. We have stuff pushing us, stuff pulling us. But fundamentally, at the core, it boils down to this. Am I living for me or am I living for God? That's it. You're moving in one of two directions. I'm moving in one of two directions. Sometimes we may be fitfully moved, but we're moving in one or two directions. And sometimes, you know, as you're trying to live for God, you see God's hand, you see God's providence, just like we saw in this book. But, you know, sometimes you don't. And you can't, but you can't hurry God, because sometimes we just have to wait. I can imagine that when Esther was going to ask the king, and, and, and the rule is, if you come unbidden to the king, your life is forfeit unless he extends your... And she's going to him and she's thinking, he hasn't asked for me lately. I'm out of favor. I'm going to ask this incredible question. Am I going to die right now? She must have been filled with that. And then when she lays out the whole thing, she still doesn't know which way is he going to go. And, the, the, and, and that must have seemed, I can imagine... Her speaking and then waiting for, for the king to answer. It might have only been five seconds, might have only been ten seconds, but it must have seemed like eternity. When your life is in the balance, seconds can last a long time. There was one time in my life, I don't know if it's the only time, but there was a time in my life where I, really, I, I thought I very possibly could die. I had gotten in the car with a friend and uh, he and I in high school, we loved fast cars. We loved motorcycles. He had an extremely fast car. And he got into a race on 95 in Washington, D.C., right outside of Arlington, Virginia. And um, he was driving like a crazy. He, just, he went crazy. I'd never seen this happen to him before. He just went crazy. And, and we were doing 130 miles an hour. We, and, you know, when a car's doing 70 and you're doing 130, it's like you're doing 70 and they're doing zero. And all of a sudden, I looked ahead and I said, there's nowhere to go. We're going to die. And I can remember that three or four seconds. I could talk to you for 10 minutes about that three or four seconds of how I reached down and I checked the seatbelt one more time, wishing that I had eight seatbelts, you know, and, and of how I, I looked right and looked left, of how I saw the person look in their rearview mirror and see us coming on them so fast, and, and of how I saw the guardrail come. And Oh, I can, it's just like time slowed down. I don't know how that is, but it's like time slowed down. And I can imagine for Esther, because I don't want to talk too much. For Esther, those seconds, those seconds waiting, how will he respond? Time probably slowed down, and she probably thought through, this. he may kill me. This is how he may kill me. This is what he might say. He might say this. He might say this. He might say this. He might try to save me, but he might save my people, which would be just as bad to me as dying. You know, just all of those things, time slows down because sometimes we have to, and we hate it, we have to wait for God. We have to wait. 
And I'm not good at waiting. I don't know anyone who says they're really good. Nobody waits recreationally. Nobody does it for fun. You know, I got a really good idea. Let's go do this. But let's wait for a while. Make it more, you know, make this time more difficult for you. You know, nobody does that. And sometimes we have to wait. And ultimately in your life, you're either moving towards God or you're moving towards you. You're either submitting or fighting. You're either in, in his kingdom, going towards his kingdom or running away from his kingdom. And this is how evil is defeated in this situation. Because someone decided, I'm moving towards God. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to, I'm, my faith is weak, but I'm going to try to do what God wants me to do. And, God, and this book is teaching us that God is involved in our lives, and he's always a part of our story. He's as much a part of your story as is of this story. God is always involved with your life, and he is a part of your story. And your story is as important to him as Esther's story and Mordecai's story. It's incredibly important. Your life, your story. Another thing we learn here, not just that God is involved, but we learn something else. There is evil in this world. There is pure, unadulterated evil in this world. We have reduced evil to bad circumstances and bad education and things like that. And they have, I don't want to, they have, they have an impact. There's no doubt about that. But there is more. Sufjan Stevens brings that up in John Wayne Gacy Jr. There is an evil that's inside us. The Bible calls it our sin nature. And people see it, even though we, we act like it's not real. In the book, The Silence of the Lambs, and I think it's in the movie pretty well too, the, it's about a serial killer, Hannibal Lecter. I think, I think some of you have heard of it, I hope. And Officer Starling, an FBI agent, goes in to interview Hannibal Lecter. And she's looking at him and she's thinking about what he's done and what he's saying and how he's acting. And she asks this question. She says, what happened to you to make you like this? See, she's the quintessential modern person. She thinks he's doing bad things. Therefore, something must have happened to him to make him this way. It must have come from the outside. It couldn't have come from the inside, which is a huge leap of faith when you start to think about that. Because it's assuming that people are basically good, and if they do anything bad, it's because something influenced them to make them do the bad thing. And it's very interesting, if you're familiar with this, his reply. This is what he says. This is right from the book. Listen to this. Nothing happened to me. I wish I could do, you know, I wish I could do the voice, and, and if I had a mask or, you know, something on and bars. Nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences. You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everyone in moral dignity pants, and nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me, he said. Look at me. Can you stand there? Can you say I am evil? Am I evil, Officer Starling? That's a powerful moment because he's making, Hannibal Lecter's making a very important point. The author of this book is making an incredible point. The modern worldview does not have an adequate category for evil. But the Bible does. The Bible recognizes it and lays it out, even though it's not necessarily a popular idea in our world. And it's called the sin nature. It's called that we have this innate sense that we can, we can go the wrong way. It can be our first option, our first thought. That given, given things happening us, we would all be John Wayne Gacy. We could all be John Wayne Gacy. Um, I, I, the, 
I found this. I'm not sure about this. Um, when um, now names escape me. When uh, uh, one of the great the Nazi that moved to Argentina that did all uh, Mengele. When he was captured by the Israelis, they had a trial. They had a public trial. They, f- they filmed it. And uh, it's all from like 1960, 61. And so it's very fuzzy and black and white. But you can find it on the internet. But at one point, they brought forth a, um, um, an Israeli author who had written a number of books. He'd been in a concentration camp. He'd met Mengele. He'd seen stuff that he'd done. And they brought him in. And, and this whole trial had been going on for quite, it lasted weeks. And they brought him in. And he sat down in the chair, the witness chair. And they started talking to him, and he started, he started shaking. It's, 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 it's an incredible scene. He started shaking, and he started crying, and he started, like, wailing. I mean, he started wailing. He fell on the floor in a fetal position, and they had to carry him out. He was, he was they couldn't communicate. He just totally had a breakdown. And, and a number of years later, he was speaking to Dan Rather on the, on the news, and Dan Rather said, can I ask you about that? And he said, yeah, you can. He said, what happened? And he said, in that trial, they talked about Joseph Mengele. He said he had a wife whom he loved. And he had children. When he was in Argentina, he had grandchildren that he doted on. And he, and he, and he gave them gifts, and he loved them. And he was, everyone said, what a good father he was. What a good man he was in Argentina. And he said, I, all of a sudden I realized I could be Joseph Mengele. I could be him. I have a wife that I love. I have children that I love. I have grandchildren. I could be him. And he said, I couldn't handle it. My brain could not process the prospect that if things maybe happened a little different in my life, I could be him. And he looked at Dan Rather and he says, I still have trouble with that. But I know it's true. What happened? He came face to face with evil and he saw himself. We all could be Haman. That evil, Christ came to defeat on the cross. And this book, the book of Esther, it points to that. God promised to bring the Messiah through the Jews and God saved his people from death to complete that promise in Jesus Christ. God does not always do what we want when we want it, but he always does the right thing at the right time. God wants to use you to accomplish his purposes in this world. It is what you were made for. And your life is too precious to use up on you. Just on you. So move towards him. Maybe in little steps. Maybe big steps relying on him to work in you, move towards him. And he will change you. You will be an Esther. You'll be a Mordecai. You will be you as God made you to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book. Lord, such an amazing book. It never mentions your name. And yet you are so all through it. We see you on every page. We see your great providence. You're working your your love. So, Father, help us. Help us to be willing to move towards you, to orient our life in a direction that honors and glorifies your name. 
Father, it's so easy for us to be caught up with ourselves, but help us to take our eyes off of you and put our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher, the champion of our faith. Lord, we just thank you that we know, we can know you are working. Give us the strength and the grace to see you at work in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to take an offering, and uh, again, I want to say, if you are a guest here, please don't feel compelled to give. This is what our regular tender and our tenders and our members do as a part of their worship.